I'm excited to share something a bit different with you today, and that is the first half of a short story that I wrote for my daughter, Sophia. When I started writing a couple years ago and thought about what projects I might want to start with, uh, three stories came to mind immediately, and that is a story for each of my kids that had them in mind and who they are, uh, but also specifically a message I wanted to give them about Jesus' love for them that I hoped would be something they could cherish and enjoy for many years to come. So after much labor and joy pouring into it, I've completed the first of those, which I will now read uh, some today and share with you, and then uh, some next time. Now we'll split it up so that it doesn't get too long. So without further ado, The Prince's Bride. For Sophia, beautiful bride of the prince and daughter of the king. I love stories and I love parties. Come to think of it, I also love stories about parties. I've never been to parties about stories, but I think I would like those very much too. This is a story about the best party that ever took place and the young lady I met there. The day started with a gorgeous sunrise, but not as early as you might be accustomed to. I live in the Arduin Mountains, and they rise so steeply that it takes the sun an extra hour to lift itself high enough to cast its rays on the mountain meadow below. You can watch the sunlight getting cut into slices by the peaks, like fruit over a sharp knife, its juices fragmenting and running down the edges to pool softly at the bottom. I stood leaning heavily on the rough wooden gate, watching the closing notes to another splendid daily overture. The air was still crisp, but the sun was warm on my face. Taking another sip of the hot contents of my mug, I drank deeply of the view. There, towering a thousand feet above this alpine meadow, lay the beautiful city Shaloa, like a lighthouse atop a winding road, so narrow it only accepts its passengers in single file. The white marble of its walls was blinding as they reached up to catch the sun's full glory even this early in the morning. As I tipped my mug back once more, its bottom stared at me blankly. Time to head back inside the bunkhouse. I walked through the front door and the delightful aromas of Buck's cooking put a glow on my face. Buck and I have lived in the same barracks with our unit from the beginning. His proper name is a glorious and worthy name, matching his stature, Reginald Livingston Smithington. So I call him Buck. Most of us just go by our first name anyway. Buck's my best friend and the most powerful guy in our elite task force. He gets to do all the protecting and fighting. Just last week he flew to the other side of the world to rescue a key delegate who had been trapped behind enemy lines and wouldn't have held out much longer. So he's cool. I'd tell you more, but when I ask him for details, Buck just smiles down at me, raises his eyebrows, and pats me on the head. Don't get me wrong, he's not condescending, it's all in good fun, and he does share stories that have been declassified, which is a key part of this story. I know I'll have my moment too, even though I have one-tenth his strength, because like all of us in the squad, I too am highly specialized. It's easy to be small, when you're getting orders directly from the High King. I know we normally don't eat breakfast, but it's a big day, so I figured I'd make us a morning meal for a change, to warm us up for the feast later, Buck said, beaming. I couldn't agree more, I answered. 
a number of the guys were already sitting down enjoying the hearty breakfast. Every day in Shaloa is great, but today would be extra special, a day long anticipated. Every being in the realm would make the trip to Shaloa to celebrate and marvel. I scarcely believed it was really here, even though I had pictured it a thousand times. Today, the great prince would marry his bride. I've witnessed more weddings than I care to count. Don't get me wrong, every one of them is a beautiful, supernatural thing. Two souls joined by the king. I still don't fully understand it. But it's sad to watch something so spectacular go unnoticed by the very ones being changed. Most humans don't realize what's really happening. Like a child who's more excited about the gift box than the treasure it holds. No wonder they get bored so quickly of playing with the wrapping and soon throw the whole gift out with the garbage. But today's wedding is different, unique. For starters, no other groom compares with the prince and no woman to his bride. Equally exciting for me, for the first time in history, the bride and groom would fully understand and experience their wedding day, and I could only imagine their unmatched joy. I had heard hints of plans for the party afterward, and I couldn't wait to see it in all its glory. Buck and I tossed theories and excitement back and forth like a hot potato while we ate a plate of hand-cut garamond bacon and a stack of steaming pancakes, each one assigned its own slab of melting mountain butter. As I soaked in the fading flavors of my last bite, I told Buck that he'd better get moving if he was going to get up to Shaloa in time. It was a perk of the job to live so close to the city. But often those who live closest arrive late, and Buck was to join the prince outside the city before he appeared. I followed a little later and entered the city through a gate called the Perch because it's on a ridge overlooking Shaloa. As I arrived, I heard a suppressed hum of excitement that reminded me of a vast swarm of bees. It came from a crowd. No, that's too small. A mass of beings gathered in the center of the city and spilling out into every cranny with a view. At one end, there was an imposing throne, towering high above the rest of the courtyard. Stretching to the other end was row upon row of the host, dressed in white robes, bright and clean, gathering in numbers I had never seen before. Suddenly, a great shout exploded from the company and hit me like the thunder of a great waterfall. Hurrah, they cried out, our king, the great and mighty reigns. My eyes followed the direction of their gaze and saw the king come out and sit down on his throne. The throne had looked majestic before, but now disappeared beneath the magnificent king's robes. I joined the cry, Let us rejoice and celebrate and give him glory. We all shouted in perfect unison, letting loose at last what we had been preparing for for so many years. For the wedding day of the prince, faithful and true, has come, and his bride has made herself ready, dressed in fine linen, bright and pure. As we said this, we turned and looked to the far end of the square. There a young woman stood, dressed in a shimmering white gown, its train spread out behind her like the single white, petal-like spathe of the calla lily. She was beautiful, and her entire face was lit up with pure, radiant joy. I have never seen that blend of longing fulfilled, exuberance, and peaceful happiness all captured in a single face in a single moment. She held me enraptured. 
Then the gates next to the bride opened, and the prince rode in, cloaked in a blood-red robe that reached to the ground. He was awesome to behold. His jeweled crown caught the sun and glittered. I squinted my eyes, straining to make out his face from this distance. More than his crown was aglow. His eyes flashed with fire from within. He exuded power, as did the huge white horse he rode. And his elite guard followed behind him, dressed in pure white and mounted on white war steeds. I could make out Buck's hulking frame, his face set in statuesque honor. How terrible a sight they would be, thundering toward you in battle, and how comforting to behold when arriving to save. The prince dismounted and approached his bride. He paused, looked into her eyes, and then whispered something in her ear. What had he said, I wondered. Then he took her by the hand and began walking her down the extended aisle toward the king. I had to get a closer look and scurried down into the multitude. I pressed my way through the cheering throng and smelled the wonderful fragrance of cedar, plums, figs, and cinnamon as I managed a brief look at the prince and his wife as they glided past. From up close, they were an even more overwhelming sight to behold. A bride who's the enemy of all women, I said aloud. My neighbor in the crowd nodded in agreement. She knows a love unlike any before her and is free of the stain of the world's imperfections. It's critical to mention here that the bride was not always so. In fact, her transformation is the greatest victory the prince has ever won against the greatest foe, for death itself flowed through her veins. Years ago, the king of this land searched for a bride for his son. The prince is no ordinary man, as you have gathered from my description. Not only is he tall, handsome, and mighty in appearance, he is supernatural indeed. Many rulers stood in defiance to his rule and the rule of his father, but one by one they all came to know his power and what it is to have the prince arrayed in full strength against you. They have all bowed the knee now, of course. Unlike many elite warriors who are feared by foe and friend alike, the prince is also full of compassion for his people. Never has there been such a patient, kind, and generous prince. The lowliest street urchins approach him without hesitation, and he has yet to turn one away. How could any princess be equal to marry such a man, you may wonder? I concede she would have to be as beautiful as he is strong, and not just in form, but in beauty of pure character and spirit as well. After an exhaustive search, no worthy partner could be found. Then a rumor arrived at Shaloa, after traveling far and wide of an exquisite beauty far away with all the traits any man could desire. So the prince set off on one last journey to see if she was the one. Buck was fortunate enough to join the prince and shared the story with me later. I captured every detail, marveling at a reality stranger than fiction, and there's nothing more thrilling for me as a storyteller than to share it with you now. As they summited the final hill on their journey, her home came into view. There lay the most elaborate, sprawling mansion the prince's host had ever seen. One wing seemed wrought of crystal, jutting out in front, a sparkling hand of welcome. Wait here, as usual, the prince commanded, as he dismounted from his towering warhorse. 
for the prince had a marvelous method to reveal the true heart of each young lady he visited. Leaving the royal party behind, the prince began walking toward the entrance to the mansion. Each step he took erased a part of his awe-inspiring stature and presence. By the time he arrived at the front door, a very average, unimpressively dressed, common-looking man reached out to knock. He wasn't disguised as a disfigured old man, and he still wore his father's ring. But he appeared simply as a man you don't see in a crowd, because nothing stands out for your mind to hold on to, and you forget him a second after you've seen him. Nevertheless, the door was opened to him by one of the servant girls. The prince explained to her that high praise of her princess had traveled to his courts. He was here to meet her, to see if it was true, to see if she was worthy. She welcomed him in and guided him down the long hallway. Another prince, another suitor, the girl thought to herself as they made their way to the library. Another man to pine after the princess. And as plain as he is, another to be cast aside with a bored roll of the eyes, no doubt. What would I give for one man to pursue me? Just one to dote on me and lay out everything he had for me, if I would consent to give him my precious hand. Even this prince would do. Her jealous fantasy faded as her meager reality invaded the dream. Like all other servant girls, she had nothing. Even her room was small and plain. Its only furnishing was a narrow bed frame that sloshed around on its joints with every movement. The room's only positive trait was a small window that looked out onto the grounds, but even that was mostly obscured by her two changes of clothes that had to be hung from the curtain rod. Her mind wandered up the stairs to the princess's quarters. Maybe she could sneak upstairs, put on one of the princess's dresses, and convince this prince that she was a lady worthy of being swept off her feet, and that they should elope immediately before her overprotective father found them out and locked her away in a tower. As happens to the best of us, even the most improbable scheme appears clever when it will gain us what we most desire and can least attain. The prince spoke and shattered her reverie. What is your name, young lady? Um, Sophia, my lord, she replied nervously. What are you dreaming about, he asked. Great. She had managed to get his attention in the end, but only to be decried by name to the princess. Not knowing what else to do, she apologized quickly and bade the prince wait here for the princess with a deeply respectful curtsy, and she disappeared with surprising silent speed. The prince waited and waited and waited, but no princess appeared. He resigned himself to the fact that the princess was a myth who could not be conjured or a narcissist who could not be bothered. But the truth was that while he waited, every handmaid in the house was working furiously to decorate the princess to her full glory, so that no prince who courted her could resist her charms. But even the most patient prince will only wait so long. The prince turned to the large carved door, which was covered with gold, and took a step to leave. Suddenly it swung open before him, and the princess appeared at last, with ten footmen on either side and three ladies-in-waiting following behind them. They formed a large semicircle and were holding heavy circular mirrors framed by gold. 
The footman held each mirror at precisely the right angle to catch the light from a window or a skylight overhead and reflect it onto the princess. And they walked in sync with each step of the princess. While the scene was comical, one had to admit it was effective. Thousands of tiny crystals had been carefully woven into the princess's hair, dress, and gloves, and the mirrors lit her like a shimmering dream. She formed her crimson lips into a sultry smile and said, Good evening, my prince. She had baited the hook and now waited with a poised calm for the inevitable bite. I can see that you're not well, princess, the prince replied, and took a few steps toward her. Excuse me, she replied with eyebrows raised and chin lowered. It's in your blood, and each beat of your heart brings you closer to death. How dare you, she shouted, jarring everyone in the room. You enter my palace and launch into bizarre accusations? Princess, there's no need to be angry, the prince replied calmly. There's no point in trying to hide your condition from me. At this point, the princess's makeup dynamically moved through several hues as rage pulsed through her face. I have never been so insulted in all my life. I have wasted the last hour upstairs preparing so that you could meet the princess worthy of any prince. You're right, the prince replied. You did waste your time. A thousand hours of washing, perfuming, and primping would be wasted. Your flaws must be removed, not added to or concealed, for you to be made perfect. Well, one thing is clear. I'm not going to waste another second on you, she said with a furious finality. She turned abruptly to retire with a loud shower of tinkling from her bejeweled attire and the anxious scuttling of footmen. Then the prince knew his trip had been in vain. Princess! The sudden commanding tone behind that single word froze her mid-step, but she did not turn to face him. She conceded only a slight turn of her head. Princess, if I am wrong, then put down your mirrors and look into mine and prove to me that death has not left its terrible black marks on you he held out an unassuming book to her. Its cover was a fine leather, and it was tied with a strap of the same material. The princess made no move to get it, so finally, when she couldn't bear the tension any longer, her handmaid Sophia quickly retrieved the text. Thank you, Sophia, the prince resumed. This is no ordinary book, princess. As you read the words written within, it will reveal your true condition, like a mirror for the heart. Open and read and then accuse me, or turn to me and plead for help, and I promise to listen. I came to save you. Another long, silent pause. I will make camp outside your walls for two weeks, then I will leave, and with me departs all hope. The princess gathered herself up slowly and marched out to her room. When all her attendants had left except for Sophia, she collapsed in heaving, angry sobs on the floor. She clenched her hands so tightly that her fingernails dug into her palms. Sophia saw an opportunity and spoke up on her behalf. What does he know? It doesn't matter. He's gone and quickly forgotten. Even so, my lady, why didn't you just read from his book and prove him wrong? Ah, Sophia, my dear, the princess condescended, wiping the tears from her cheeks as she turned around. 
that would only encourage him and every other simple cur to challenge and question, why should I submit to a test of his making? Then, seeing that Sophia still held the book, she added, get that thing out of my sight. Yes, my lady, Sophia replied with a curtsy, and she closed the door behind her, returning down a tall, curving flight of stairs to her room. Sophia dropped the book on her bed and flopped down next to it, setting off waves of rocking as the bed threatened final collapse. She fluffed what little old stuffing her pillow had and rested her head on it. What a waste, she said aloud as she considered the situation again. While she couldn't have foreseen the emotional cannon fire, she shook her head knowingly, pleased that she had correctly predicted the outcome. And at least she hadn't been sucked into the drama and was safely in her room and still on the princess's side. Her hand slid across the soft leather of the volume as she rolled over to her side. She now had one rejected item in her room that belonged to the princess. Did that make it hers now? More importantly, was it really a special work? And if it had the secret power the prince had claimed, would its powers work only for the princess? Or could she unlock them, too? As her curiosity grew, she put it on her lap and began to untie the leather strap. The princess hadn't told her not to open it. The pages were whiter than any she had seen, and Sophia couldn't help but touch the empty cover page. It was very smooth, too. As she pressed down on the page again, she could barely see the shapes of words hiding behind. What did they say? There's only one way to find out, she concluded after a pause, and she turned the page and began to read. She would only read one page, she told herself, and she did. Reaching the bottom of the page, she stopped. She didn't feel any different. Maybe it wasn't working. She stood and crossed the room to her window, turning her head from side to side, leveraging the partial reflection she could see of herself in the glass as a mirror. She didn't look any different either. The princess must be right. There was no magic mirror hiding in the book. Sophia read a bit more every day. She couldn't help herself. At first she read out of curiosity, comforting herself that it couldn't hurt, but she quickly forgot that the volume offered any threat and read a page whenever she could, between duties, because the book was filled with mesmerizing stories and poems and letters. Many parts were strange and foreign. Others seemed so familiar it was as if the author had written them to her. But the truth of each resonated deep places in her heart she had forgotten or had tried to forget. One morning, as she made the princess's bed, she noticed something on the back of her hand. There was a discolored area, the size and shape of a lima bean just above her wrist. A panic seized her for a moment, but she coached herself through it. Don't freak out, Sophia. I'm sure it's nothing to do with the book. It's only a mild skin irritation. But by dinner time, she could no longer coach her panic away. The dark rash had spread over her entire hand and started up her arm. Worse, she saw a small splotch on her left hand as well. That night, she put the text under her bed and sat huddled under her blanket, wondering what came next. Well, thanks for listening. That's the first part. And if you want to hear what comes next, then uh, check back in. And my next post, I'll share the rest of the story.